right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan and Josh. Hello, hello, hello. Marcello, or so he says. That's what I say. Hello, everyone. <laughs> and TJ Roberts returning once again. What's going on, everyone? All right, and today's discussion is going to be over COP26, the climate conference that ran uh, October 31st through November 12th in Glasgow, Scotland. And just as your annual weekly update, uh, Biden did sign the $1.2 trillion infrastructure package yesterday, November 15th. We're recording a little bit early because some of us are on the road this week. So when you see this air on Saturday, uh, that's that will have been yesterday, according to then. So uh, I'm going to kick it over for the announcements, uh, starting with TJ. So if you guys would please give us a follow on social media, we are on Instagram, we have a Facebook page, we are on Twitter, and we also are on YouTube where we will be live streaming whenever possible. Yeah, and you can always um, check us out on our Facebook, our YouTube channel where we do broadcast the live streams. Again, when we can get around to it, we're not always here, even as we mentioned that we're recording this a little bit of uh, off schedule here on an odd night. So we're always going to be passing that around. Also, as as a continual reminder, you can find our merchant stuff on Redbubble. And for the announcement about the music, um, I'm not sure who we're tossing that to. So let's maybe hear a bit more on that. Marcel, you want to take that one? Sure. We have a new music, courtesy of Andrew Hensley. Thank you so much. Over at Secret Spike Studio slash 865 Audio. Uh, he's got a hot new single dropping title, Footprints, this Friday on all major streaming platforms. So be sure to check it out. Thank you, Andrew, so much for the music. It's a banger. It's really good. Yeah, we got intro music and uh, living the high life. So when you watch this streamed on Saturday, you can already go check it out. So I'd encourage you to do that after you finish watching this live stream. Uh, so I'm going to give it to Marcelo since Marcelo works closely enough with the governmental agencies that have kind of the inside scoop on our topic for today. So Marcelo, I'm going to turn that back over to you. Yes, I think similar to two weeks ago, it is my time to do the disclaimer. I do work for Climate Nexus, which is a 501c3 a nonprofit that is financed by Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, but all of the opinions set here are mine and mine alone. So with that said, I, I do say a lot of this in my real job too. So, you know, take that for what you will. So basically COP26 is this huge conference that happens every year, except when there's a global pandemic. So it didn't happen last year. People get together and they discuss climate action. So you saw Biden get there um, the first week of COP, and then you saw a bunch of Congress people get there the second week to reunite with other decision makers across the world and talk. Like basically, and I'm going to be saying talk a lot because this is a lot of what they do. They meet up, they have these meetings, and they get to these agreements, which in my opinion are pretty useful in theory. But in practice, um, they really fall short of what the real goals are, which is preventing global warming from getting too worse so we don't, we don't all drown basically like it's it's like i don't know like have you guys heard any, anything about cop recently i'm sure it's been on the news a lot but you know the pledges are just in the air so from my understanding of the conference there was an ideal set out package of what the world wanted to uh, achieve versus of what we know of current economic activity will lead to overall carbon levels and other ecological and environmental impacts and i know there was at least what some consider pretty significant concessions made as a global agenda. And I think that stings a lot of stings to a lot of environmental activists of like watching the step back of having to have some of these concessions being made because, you know, 
as much as you know, we like to play around with the idea of climate change and global warming and talk about it as a concept, the worse it gets, this does represent what will constitute the one of the worst, if not the worst, humanitarian crisis or, you know, we've ever faced you know, in our coming lifetimes. In the next you know, 40 to 60 years, we'll see some incredibly um, terrible things play out on our planet as some of the impacts of this become more and more real. So Josh lays out the reason that these people are meeting. To me, though, it seemed to really be the specials of the world coming together to make pledges that they never keep. And a lot of key players who are contributing to the climate change that aren't meeting, like notably Russia and China, were not there. China outpaces everyone right now with their global emissions, and the United States has pledged to do better. But India, on the other hand, has said, we're developing as a nation and we need these carbon emissions, so we can get you by, I think it was like 2035 or something like that. Like they had extended uh, what this is pretty much Paris Climate Accords 2.0. Uh, we talked about that a few episodes ago where we had all of these world leaders meet together and talk about what can we do to reduce our carbon footprint. And now they've kind of met again, like Josh was mentioning, as I've understood it anyway, to talk about, well, here's what we have done, haven't met our goals, things are still looking like it's going to continue. So that's... But, but it's not binding. That's the big thing to me is like, there's there's no teeth to this. So to me, it seems like a bunch of virtue signaling. Like we've gotten together and then China and Russia were just like, nah, not even worth our time. Like we're not even going to show up and make the concessions. Uh, TJ, what are your thoughts on this? I have a lot of thoughts on it. I mean, it's just grandstanding from elites who take private jets to come to these conferences then to talk about how the average person in their country is destroying the world whenever it's beyond dispute, particularly in our country where the largest polluter, not just in this country, but in the world is our warfare strategies, where we are spending trillions of dollars dropping bombs and polluting the world. And frankly, if we're not even going to talk about that, I don't see any progress in it, which I don't think that was even brought up even once by the United States. Notably, also, you had a lot of protesters outside of this. Uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, she was out there making kind of this uh, a, a similar accusation as what we're talking about right now is that the world leaders are doing a bunch of talking. They're not doing a whole bunch of doing like they're just in there talking, grandstanding, as TJ mentioned, and nothing has really come of that. So it seemed like the people meeting in the conference were angering the average citizen who is not doing as much to pollute, like TJ mentioned, and the activists who want more to be done because nothing's being done. So they're kind of stuck in the middle. And to me, I don't know that a whole lot of good was achieved. Uh, Marcelo, do you, I don't know, maybe you have a different perspective. Did we lose him? Well, maybe not have a Marcelo. <laughs> I think I think you lost me for a little there bit. There he is. Okay, oh, he's back. There's Marcelo. <laughs> uh, so I was thinking that not a lot of good actually came out of this because nothing was really done. I didn't know if maybe you had a, a different thought or maybe something to add to that. Okay, yes. So I think in principle, the grandstanding argument, you know, it makes sense because there's a lot of people doing a lot of things that at the end of the day, because these arguments are non-binding, and I will actually have to correct you on that. China was there. Oh. It wasn't very there, but okay. it, it was there. They, like they did meet in, in several occasions. Biden met with their uh, ministers on, on energy, transportation. And so those, John Kerry also met with them. So though you had those meetings happen, but you Russia know, wasn't there, right? Them. Or was I wrong on that too? Um, well, I, well, I haven't seen much on Russia, so I cannot, I cannot say. Okay. That maybe a Google search would probably. Well, thank you for the correction. I appreciate it. There. <laughs> no, no, no problem, no problem. But you know, it, you know, if we're being honest, like I think the problem with COP more than doing all of these empty gestures is that I wish they were full gestures, and you know, like I, I don't have a problem with them saying that they're going to do all these things if they actually did them. Um, that's what bothers me because I want them to do more, not less, obviously. And so when they get up and they 
shake hands and they do all of these things. It's like, it makes me sad and it makes me upset because I know how much more they could be doing to curb these emissions. I mean, you had an example on Biden who was, a, a, you know, talking about like all the carbon emissions and how we needed to curb them. But then three days later, like we know that Exxon and like Exxon executives are still like in DC, like making all of these deals. We know that they were in COP2, you know, they were in Glasgow, like doing all of the things that they are they continue to do and like even in many of these conferences more fossil fuel deals and transactions are made more than actual renewable energy which to me makes makes no sense at all like they send their lobbyists and they actually get more out of the conference than the climate activists that should get a seat there so you know i i, I hate in practice what it has become but i would still you know like cop six for a reason like it needs to exist and it needs to continue they just need to do it better, as simple as that sounds. I do think there's also something to be said about there is a ritual act of politics that people kind of do expect. We have these big ceremonies of swearing in the president, where there's a whole bunch of people come and spectate just for um, some person just to say some words with their hand over a book. Like there's nothing going on there, but the ceremony makes it into this concrete political structure we interact with. It turns these just words and symbolic action as Kenneth Burke would prose into like actionable items for people to engage with and perceive and understand what the state and government is. So I do think when we look at the like longer historical perspective about climate policy and about how we've been working with this though, there is a lot of this virtue signaling that does still like need to have its messaging work in some way or another. Now whether or not this one worked in particular is not, but we went from ExxonMobil understanding Understanding that they were harming the climate um, in the early 70s to them and then the other fossil fuel industries starting one of the first climate change denial, you know, lobbying companies and faux research institutions that have then proceeded to cause a lot of damage. And still to this day, we see a lot of people denying that, you know, there's been these impacts or what these impacts are going to be. And like, the people who are somewhat most largely responsible for it are some of the we you know one, the ones most largely responsible for the propaganda that they haven't done anything wrong as well. And I'll say you know you know TJ also made a good point though about how about you know when we think about pollution and like environmental impact of like the waste of militaries and stuff like that of like the United States and Japan you know sending boats and floating around parts of Asia just so China can respond and go burn some more diesel and float around other parts of the South Asian Sea and then they're all just like just burning a bunch of diesel and it's like what are we doing here and there's just a lot of like factors that the government's unwilling to address currently but the ritualized factor of coming together and talking does a lot to kind of, you know, cement that this is a significant problem we're going to be facing and that we do need more serious action. So there is something to be said about these ceremonial acts of sitting down all at the same table. So now that we've kind of gotten through like the overview, um, unless Marcelo has something else to add, we can kind of probably get into where do we see these underpinning things being necessary or not? We covered a lot of this back in our episode over the Paris Climate Accords. And so I don't want us to go down that path too much and like focus more around what this conference actually accomplished. But to me, it seems like the the evidence for climate change, as we mentioned in one of the other episodes, 
also shows that a lot of the climate changes that happen are baked into the cake. And along with that, human beings adapt as they have over time since the beginning of time. And so, for example, instead of just pledging that we're going to cut our emissions and wreck our economy, some things that could be done would be like we could deal with the aftermath. So, for example, you could invest in the infrastructure. Like we saw the last bout of hurricanes down in Louisiana, uh, they weren't as damaging because that state had invested a lot into their infrastructure to deal with some of the aftermath effects, which also was able to provide jobs for people, which was also able to do some other things. So like certain aspects can be beneficial, but other aspects like just pledging, we're just going to stop with our carbon emissions. We're going to get everyone to switch to EVs. To me, like even talking about that doesn't really seem to do a whole lot of good because not only is it not feasible, it carries so much detriment that the average Americans or the average citizens, if you look at this from a global perspective, wind up feeling. I think you also have to acknowledge that a part of the reason why we're even having this conversation on, on why it's so unfeasible and so unreasonable to transition from fossil fuels, it's because the fossil fuel companies have done an excellent job at generating all of this propaganda for us. I feel like we have such a huge dependency on these fossil fuels to begin with that transitioning from them does seem unreal. And it is unreal in some ways, like, you know, we're not going to change all to electric cars next week. But if we start subsidizing those cars more and start subsidizing gas less, I'm just saying, you know, things could change. And I don't think you have to pick and I don't think you have to like pick either to wreck the economy or to get all of your dams like tornado like proof, right? I think you can do both. And this is the thing, like when it comes to saving the planet from increasing global warming, like yes, humans will adapt, but not all humans will adapt. There's a lot of people right now who are going through, like Josh mentioned, a humanitarian crisis. And I think it's on the country that did this in the first place to try to fix this problem. I almost feel like the people are calling, and I'm not accusing anyone here on most of the people here are, they practice what what they preach. What I'm concerned about is like specifically those at COP26 talking about moving away from fossil fuels. It's a great duty statement that they're pointing out. However, there are so many unforeseen consequences that they have. For one, they fail to look in the mirror for themselves, looking at how they actually got there, looking at what their lifestyles are like, looking at their other policies that they're advocating for whenever we're talking about government leaders. Second, just with in regards to unforeseen consequences, the production for electric vehicles, for example, just, just on that one notion for like transitioning to EVs, we've solved part of the problem with EVs. They are now remarkably affordable EVs. Like Tesla's Model 3 is less than $30,000, I think, which now, I mean, that's less than some new cars that are outright gas operated that are considered mid-range vehicles, whatever that means to my broke self. But in, in regard to it as well, though, it's like, yes, for the average individual, that is taking their use of gasoline out. However, the production of the car, the production of the energy that is used to charge these vehicles as well, like it, it's shifting it from one direction to the other. I really don't know what the outcome is because Frankly, I'm not an expert on climate science, but it's one of those things where it's like, I think that there are just much larger things that we can address rather than just looking at the lifestyle of the average person. Well, and like you mentioned earlier, I mean, even the average lifestyle, me driving to work, sure, there's a carbon footprint attached to that, just like there is for everything, including like cows passing gas in the middle of the field technically has a carbon emission effect, but we're not treating the root cause. And again, this is where I have, uh, and I would say that I don't think that this meeting did all that much because 
because their focus, as, at least from what I the the speeches that I saw, didn't focus on some of the major contributing factors. It talked more about we pledge to subsidize EVs. We plan to also make sure that they're more affordable because quite frankly, I mean, $30,000 is cheaper than some cars, but you know, I mean, that can still be a, a substantial price that would have to be paid by lower and, and middle class individuals who can't afford to just drop that. So I know I can't afford a Model 3. Right. And we're, we're subsidizing things that aren't making as big of a difference. So like, even in theory, if the government came in and they were like, every U.S. citizen gets subsidized and they, they get to have an EV and we're going to tax people to pay for it. So, you know, we've covered it. And that's just how we've decided to deal with this. That's still not addressing the major issue of we're still going to see climate change, carbon emissions still happen. We've only tackled a small piece and you're prioritizing the piece that isn't even the biggest piece in the puzzle. Yeah, I think every policy that you press, you know, at an individual level uh, with solvency issues for climate change is always going to fail in all of our kind of debate, you know, terms. Like we're never going to be voting for the affirmative when we isolate out um, single plans too much like that. Because it is a part of a larger picture, because even if, you know, we switched everyone over to using electric electric cars, the way we produce electricity obviously matters, you know, dramatically. Like if the government stopped subsidizing the coal industry, it would collapse. Um, It is way too expensive to dig out of the ground versus how much energy it produces versus any other form of, of energy. So like... By natural market forces, coal only exists because of its government intervention to keep it alive. And now natural gas and fossil fuels um, and petroleum isn't like that right now. And it's still very much so a profitable industry. But like we have to subsidize to keep coal alive. And we do it, you know, for very specific economic regions because sometimes it is the only economic activity in that area. But how much are we willing to value that economic activity versus how many people might end up dying in the future because of these changes? I think Marcel leads to a large part of like most of these crises that are going to play out for climate change are going to be those from nations whose footprint is overall very small in comparison to like the United States, the United Kingdom and Germany. And we can even a lot of the times like to compare, well, India is saying that we need this and China is saying, well, we need this. And while China has overall like elapsed the United States emissions on a year-to-year basis, they're in this constant catch-up saying, hey, this is unfair. You all got to do this for 200 years. And now you're coming and saying this, we can't even do this for 50 years. And so they're saying you all got rich and developed and industrialized and have these nice, fancy new nuclear and wind dam and wind powers and solar panels and the technology to produce that. But we don't because we didn't have that same time. And so that's why even why even India's like, we're sorry, but no, we have to use coal to keep developing parts of our country that isn't as well as developed as other parts of it. And I think that's also a constant struggle between the nations of like, there's a humanitarian crisis of delivering like electricity and running water to significant parts of India and China as well. So that electricity is very, very valuable now, even if its pollution is going to be harmful in a bit more of the long run. So it's trying to balance it out there. But I think, you know, we're all in agreement to the point of like these, the developed industrialized the West as you would, you know, has its responsibilities as the authors of most of this pollution and now being some of the most unwilling to self-analyze and start taking corrective action to these problems. I think what you're uh, talking about there, Josh, gets at a couple of key issues. The first one being that if you're a large developed nation, you got 
got there through the carbon footprint. And the other thing that's a big key factor in what you were just talking about is that the reason that that carbon footprint is there in the first place is because it is affordable and it is efficient as opposed to some of the alternative sources of energy that we're now pushing towards because we're not really pushing towards nuclear, which would be the cleanest and most efficient. We're pushing towards, I know like solar and wind and some other ones have, have been talked about, but you're, you're now expecting nations to be both developed and also be clean. And that's just not possible because the way that a country gets industrialized, the way that they become a world power, the way that they get beyond just trying to survive and can actually increase the quality of life for their citizens is unfortunately, from a, a, a global perspective, through these types of energy, because that's what we can afford. And I think that that's mirrored in the way that American citizens are going to be viewing this, because it if you'll notice, it's easy for the elites. Like even President Obama came out and said, I can afford to cut back. It's like, you can, you make millions of dollars um, every single year. And you know, your net worth is significantly larger. The immediate concerns for the average American, that's out of touch with that because I'm worried about how can I get to work so I can have a job so I can pay my bills. Gas prices have increased 30% coming up for this winter, which means that people trying to heat their homes. And if you, you know, if you're in a, a middle or a lower class, you're gonna have a hard time doing that. And so when we're just expecting that either poorer countries or poorer people, even within the United States, can just make that switch. I think that there's a, a bit of a disconnect between the people who are saying we need to cut these things and the people who are really going to be feeling that impact. I think people are getting, and by people, I mean, like, not everyone, obviously, but I think most people are getting mad at the wrong target. Like, obviously, you know, sure, get mad at Biden because he said one thing and then he did the other. But also, you know, get mad at the Exxon and you know, the BP lobbyists that are, like, obstructing all of this agenda. Because the reason why you don't have, like, you know, the big pledges, like, you know what would be really effect effective at COP if they announce? If they just announce that, you know, no more subsidies for coal. And like Josh said, the industry just collapses. Would that be bad? Yeah, of course. But, like, would that be a solution for the coal industry emission yes yes it would be but you will never see those arguments at least not in the system that we live on currently because of all the resources that they have at hand to keep pushing for these policies to ensure that we get worried more about you know plastic straws rather than all of the oil that's been dumped in the rivers on the ocean the paper straw with the plastic wrapper or the lid that used more plastic so that you didn't have to use the straw so marcelo if i kind of go down that train of thought that you're bringing up there and let's say that we remove those subsidies from coal and and let's just stick with coal because you mentioned coal. Pretty clearly, you know, that's that's going to take a downtick then. Do you think then that the amount that like electric and, and the other stuff would be able to be sustainable? Because to me, the concern is, sure, you can cripple what is both affordable and effective and, and powerful as far as like being able to sustain people through like heating their homes and traveling to work. Can we maintain the standards of living and working and the accessible things that we have come as industrialized nations to appreciate? Or are we really going to taper off? Because to me, I don't see a lot of the infrastructure going. And, I, and this is not just to say that, you know, we're going to keep electric vehicles the same, so it's going to take a downtick. But do we really think that we'll be able to get them to the point where we're at now with the less clean energies? Look, my, my free market lovers in the, in the conversation and in the, like, um, and our listeners will be mad at this, but like none of these big changes, like societal social changes happened because the free market decided they were going to. A lot of this, like, you know, think about internet. Even go back radio, television, like all of these were huge 
projects implemented by the government who decided to, you know, like using obviously uh, other companies uh, as, as a medium, implementing all of these, uh, like this infrastructure happened through collective action. And so, yes, of course, it's going to have a cost. Like, I'm not saying like it's not going to cost anything. And if you remove the subsidies, yes, people will, you know, like it's going to be in the long run, it's going to be good to curb the emissions. But in the short term, you will have some kind of disadvantages. I guess my, my biggest takeaway from what you have said is that your argument of, you know, they cannot force us to do this applies less so to the US than to other developing nations, like Josh said. I feel like trying to force people to make the jump all the way to developed and also clean and also like all of those things without using the emissions and without using fossil fuels is a lot to ask of countries who are not developed yet. I don't think it holds that much ground, or at least I think it holds less ground for the US. I also think, you know, and was all with, you know, government, even whether it's government action or some magical invisible hand coming in and doing the, that that same action. If you take the population, you know, and you're talking to Ryan, your concerns about like quality of like life for an individual, if like, you know, we let the coal industry like collapse. At that level, though, no one's going to walk into the coal plant, hit the off switch, and then like let the town be, oh, we're out of power. Like that's just, that's not how the world works. They would obviously have to be other sites or methods of electricity generation equivalent to and probably with, built with, you know, growth in mind for the area. And they would install those facilities, power them online, and then shut the coal-fired plant off fine. You know, there would not be some like mass like interruptions. That is what a GDP as large as America gets you. You don't have to deal with like scenarios like that. You you can phase it out. And so it's the actions of us like taking the steps to do so. And that's why offering incentives towards EVs are part of it. Even if you think about, you know, the government interacting with the economy. So part of the problem people have with EVs are like, well, uh, where am I going to charge it? You know, I can just fill up at every gas station, but now I'm going to have like these set amount of charges. Well, the more and more people that buy electric cars, the more and more companies will want to have electric charging stations at their gas stations so they can attract those customers. Like there's always going to be this balance. And so that's what, what the government needs to start doing is like it has the power to press its hands on those levers and be like, this can be a growth option instead of making this other option the growth option. And so the consumers and individuals can take into a part of it. I also think what we've touched on a little bit here about the idea of like, you know, paper straws or the plastic lids and such as there's been a lot of the propaganda uh, that we've talked about has turned what is like societal level business entity level decisions into, you know, individual problems and, you know, getting people being like, you know, make sure you turn your water off, you know, when you're brushing your teeth, make sure when you leave the room, like, you know, flick the lights off and like, that's great. But then like one of these ships sails from China over to the United States and it pollutes more than us will in our entire lives in that one ship sail. So there's this incredible balance and please no one read that as they like your individual actions don't matter because at the end of the day, they matter some. But that's why we need policy action at this international cooperative level to because even like, so yeah, India has this, you know, this electricity, you know, electricity needs that they depend on coal fire plants to make so they can't pledge as much. Well, how about these countries that can make a ton of electricity through the might of their economy, then, you know, do their part to aid other countries as well, because this is a problem that's going to affect us all greatly. New York City is in the 
the midst of building seawalls around a park and they're going to demolish a whole park. They're going to build a 10 foot seawall and then they're going to rebuild the park a little bit back. New York City is going to have to have seawalls. So if we don't help India and China out and other developing countries out in their developing parts, it's going to cost us more as well. Like this isn't just a problem we can pretend that we get to be isolated from if we can't do our best to affect the global community as well. So what you had mentioned, Josh, as far as like stuff will be phased out, um, there's a few instances where I have to disagree. And this is specifically coming from Biden's administration's approach towards these things. So they've been very, very pro green energy, uh, which means that they revoked the Keystone Pipelines permit. And then originally there was talk of them trying to remove the, I think it was the line, line five pipeline. And they've decided not to let that go under because of the economic impacts. But because they are so focused on how can we be green and force people to switch over, we see that they are not allowing that gradual switch. Like if they were, then I would grant you that. But, but those are those are just pipelines to move oils. Those don't generate electricity or our infrastructure of towns. That's literally just to move oil around. That's those aren't good examples. But for it that symbolizes that they are canceling the jobs that were there. They were also stopping the movement of oil within ourselves, which means that as a nation, if they are going after where the oil can, uh, he's also been in favor of not allowing fracking to take place, which is a source not only of revenue, but also of oil for us to increase our independence. It pushes us in a position to have to switch. You can make the argument that that's good, but they're not allowing this to be gradually tapered off. They've been very aggressive in the forcing of that to take place. I want to sort of push back on the notion that subsidies would be enough to, uh, like ending subsidies would be enough to cripple the oil, the coal industry beyond repair. Um, according to Congressional Budget Office, granted these are 2016 numbers, but I just simply cannot find greater numbers here. 59% of all energy subsidies go toward renewable energy. Now we could break these up, but ultimately like that's just their big conglomerate. About 25% go to fossil fuels, almost all of which goes to oil and gas, whereas less than a billion dollars goes towards coal and and coal's at more than an $18 billion industry. It, it, it's hard for me to say that just taking out less than a billion dollars in it, which almost all that billion dollars is just tax incentives. So it's not like it would be directly cutting off direct handouts. I'm sure they could find other loopholes in our in our tax code, which that's an entirely different conversation to talk with the CPA about. But I... I don't necessarily know that that would actually do the trick for them. I almost feel like, if anything, given the numbers, that renewable energy has more to lose from losing subsidies than fossil fuels. If we were talking about 2007 numbers, absolutely, yeah, it, it would be very damaging to toward it compared to green energy. But that's one thing to consider as well is just how like comparatively small the subsidies are for the coal industry specifically. I, yeah, TJ is right. I mean, like uh, most of my work is in gas, anyways, because coal has been phasing out and naturally in favor of uh, gas and oil. So I, no, I agree. I think, I think uh, it's more wishful thinking. And like coal is, I feel like generally most people are like, oh yeah, coal is bad. Um, gas has done a much better job at marketing themselves as a cleaner option, which they are, but not by much. And again, that you got to remember that that's coal was just a monstrosity when it comes to pollution and the carbon footprint. So, you know, it's like Marcella mentioned, it's, it is better. It doesn't mean it's great. It still, still has a carbon footprint, which is why it's important to remember that they're also going after trying to decrease, if not eliminate those things for the full switch off. 
Yeah, because in terms of like how you measure energy production, you have like, um, you know, you take a set amount of material and then you verse like how many, how much energy are you going to get out of it? Not only is coal extremely inefficient, the amount it pollutes in terms of its energy production is incredibly bad. And it's one of the most harmful things to release into our atmosphere. Like in China, and this is going to be an incredible number, 4,500 people, 4,500 people every day die from smog-related poisoning basically in their lungs from the coal fire plants in China. 4,500 people every day. And that's from those active plants. And so that's that's why, you know, it's outside of our borders, obviously outside of our control. But this sets kind of even why, like, we have a lot of these, like, dire, like, needs to switch off, off of this and to do what we can to disincentivize local, like, communities providing um, grants to coal mines and providing um, write-offs. Because, TJ, it's not just about the congressional office of budgets. It's about, like, what West Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, and the coal in, the, in eastern Kentucky um, state budgets will also do to subsidize those programs and what the state and local counties will do in terms of taxes and like existence of like those coal fields. And so like the grand scheme of it, even if it is, is of like to reduce coal to where natural gas is a more marketable favorable. And so borderline, that means get the gas over to the town, fire up a gas plant instead of a coal plant. And that does literally mean less people will die. And depending on which scientific study you consult, for about every uh, 100, not 100, for 1,000 uh, metric tons of carbon released into our atmosphere, um, and then this is the variant between 300 and 3,000 people are going to die. And so there's, and uh, it's actually a study um, I've been reading and referencing about like climate action and climate action uh, rhetoric. And so they've been focusing around this idea of then tailoring that into 1,000 tons of carbon into the atmosphere equals one death going into the future. And when we weigh that out then and look at 2019's total carbon production to our atmosphere, it was some like 33 or 38 billion tons of carbon into our atmosphere, which means for 2019 alone, just 2019, some 30 million people are going to die in the future. And that's happening and that happened again in 2020. And it's going to happen again in 2021. And it's going to happen again. And it's going to keep getting worse before we hit kind of peak carbon and start slowly bringing down our carbon emissions. So we're not just talking about some minor inconveniences to the world. We saw Europe lose its mind over 700,000 or a few million at the best estimates of Syrian refugees when they came into Europe. We're going to be talking about migrants and displacements in terms of people of the hundreds of millions, if not billions of people needing to resettle and move from where they are. Like we're talking parts of the United States, especially looking towards like Arizona and the other parts of our Southwest being uninhabitable because the amount of heat stroke that happens. The heat wave that happened earlier this year killed 200 people in British Columbia, Canada. The impacts are kind of hard to be incalculable. And I think that's what really drives the heart of looking at why every ton of carbon we keep out of our atmosphere is going to do something to mitigate what is an unavoidable train barreling at us. So Josh, the stuff you brought up, um, I know that it varies from depending on who cites what and the models that they run. And again, because it's science, they're just making theoretical predictions based off of the available data and it changes from year to year. And that's important to understand. And that's not to say this doesn't exist and it's not a problem, but I'm going to kind of funnel what was the, the international conference down towards the U.S. application. And this is going to bring in my criticism of the conference and just what we're doing in general, trying to alleviate the problems that you mentioned is 
is that it becomes political when the Biden administration, as the leaders of our nation in which we inhabit, they look at this problem and they they see that the average American consumer is not the primary cause, and yet they pass legislation and they do things that makes it not only more economically difficult for the average American, especially for those in lower classes, it also fails completely to address what would what would alleviate the problems that you were talking about. And again, just us trying to cut these things out on the assumption that we're going to see devastation down the road, it is important to note that is if no mitigating factors come into effect. So things like the dams that are put into place to mitigate the damage from the seawalls, which are caused by climate change, things like that, where we're just assuming that it will remain stagnant. And that's also overlooking the fact that we could have newer and better ways um, to I'm structure these things. I'm going to do a correction here. Um, that's, that's not the case. The publication is a Parncut 2019. He actually does review it. It's, this is meta-analysis that looks at the 300 to 3,000 and how they come to that calculation and why the um, one life for 100 or for 1,000 tons of carbon um, is the rhetorical thing. So like, no, um, that was part of like the metadata calculation. That's the, the studies. Um, right, but I'm saying, the rhetorical. I'm saying like, that he can't like, see into the future, so he doesn't know what well, new things we could have to mitigate this. Right, but that's also why the explicit notation of we don't know if it's going to be 300 tons of carbon or 3,000 tons of carbon and the settling on the 1,000 tons of carbon for the rhetorical campaign is understanding that this will happen, but it's very well documented. Like It's a pretty undeniable, like we do know even if we protect New York, still places like Bangladesh and Malaysia aren't going to have the ability to build a 10-foot seawall. And we're the ones who put that carbon in the atmosphere and we're the ones who run the economy that prevents them from developing into a country that lets them put 10 foot seawalls up. But I would say we're also um, now part of the coalition that's trying to prevent them from reaching the infrastructure to be able to do that. Like if you cripple them now and say, sorry, you can't reach our level because we're not letting you use these things because they're not clean, then like that's just furthering the problem though. Right. But that's also the only people who don't want to help them, who don't want to further help these countries mitigate the problems that they're going to face and the people who are willing to engage with them internationally, like that's, you know, what the world offers us is Joe Biden. So what does America then do? Elect a Republican then who undoes green energy subsidies and makes everything worse and we don't get any progress at all. And they're entirely unwilling to help the international community. So we're like faced in like this terrible option of like, yeah, Joe Biden isn't doing doing much in America is not promising to do much else. But at the same time, we're constantly catering to people whose entire campaigns and research institutes are backed by fossil fuel money. So the world's left with this alternative of catering to Ryan, realistically, your all's position of like the moderate concern of, well, you know, we can't like raise like taxes on the rich and do like a big infrastructure package. Part of what died in the $1.2 trillion down from the whatever Biden originally wanted was significant work on ecosystem restoration and protecting parts of America, developing our infrastructure more and getting ready for climate change, as well as just helping to repave our roads. Like the people who want to help are the one, you know, they're not being allowed to help. There are people who want to work together, people who want to subsidize these industries, but there's opposition in our own government to that. We would give these countries the chances 
But the same political party that doesn't want to finance more green energy here at home is going to be the same political party that won't help them either. So you got to eventually wind up facing down of like what Joe Biden can achieve is still going to be more than any Republican president was going to achieve in the first place. Is it the best that any Democratic president was going to give us? You know, probably not. Well, I think it's I think it's important to say, though, that like what you're seeing is that President Biden is grandstanding and he's giving us that. But as far as tangible change, I don't know that you can really make the claim that he's doing more than a Republican president would. For one, we don't have one in office to compare it to. And for two, we're not moving any more forward now from grandstanding than we were when we were pulled out. Who opposes the Green New Deal? The urge to save humanity is almost always a false front for the urge to rule. I do not take seriously any climate proposal from Joe Biden so long as we still have a global military industrial complex like we do. With the stroke of the pen, the commander in chief could end every war and bring every troop home, internalize our defense, and effectively more than cut in half America's carbon footprint. The, I mean, just ultimately, anything that was in the Green New Deal, anything that was in the so-called infrastructure package is nothing compared to the tangible benefits that Joe Biden could do without congressional authorization. He could do that tomorrow if he wanted to, but he chooses not to because ultimately he cares more about the empire than he, do- than he cares about the climate. He cares more about sustaining the global dominance than he cares about the the people of Bangladesh and the people of Indonesia, the countries that you're speaking on, which there's other issues in that regard financially. But I I mean, just ultimately what we do on the home front is absolutely nothing compared to what we could do abroad by that one simple stroke of a pen that would require the authorization of no member of Congress. Yeah, um, neither are mutually exclusive, but both get to the point. The moderate Democrats and the Republican and conservative faction of America of a whole just do not care for climate action. Recalling the military would be a much easier sell to the Democratic Party than the than any conservative faction other than like more like isolation um, um, takes. Um, because I disagree. Then what was Bush doing? Well, uh, I'm like starting to... five five fewer wars than Barack Obama started, dropping far fewer bombs than his successor dropped. I, I'm not defending Bush's policy. He's a war criminal and should be imprisoned and should be remembered as such. But let's not forget the fact that this was not only continued, but expanded upon by the next administration. And it was continued upon and expanded by the administration after that. And it's currently being continued upon and expanded. Sure, we had the so-called Afghanistan withdrawal, yet we're still dropping more bombs than we've ever seen before. For. It's not a partisan matter. Ultimately, if we're talking about pulling out the troops, that's that is not a talking point of the left anymore. That's the talking point of the populace, whether it be on the right or the left. But it's not a talking point of any establishment faction in politics right now. So let's be sure to bring it back just more towards <laughs> less on the history of the war criminals and more on the history of, of where we're at with the climate change aspect, just to kind of recenter. But um, this is going to lead us to future discussions as Build Back Better gets debated more. It's been kicked till I think mid December. December is about where we're at. And they do have a lot of subsidies for green energy. The problem, though, is that they're not providing metrics that show that this is actually not that not to say that there's not a reason to try to clean up our Energy Act, but they're not showing how these subsidies are actually going to uh, help us reach that goal, nor are they showing how that's going to benefit, especially the average American citizen. There seems to be a, a huge disconnection between what is proposed in trillions of dollars of spending and how we can actually benefit and reduce the carbon footprint to begin with. Uh, well, Ryan, like your evidence press on my pardon uh, citation, I say that no one can tell the future, so it's impossible to know. So vote AF on the bill. Um, thank you. Uh, I will concede the rest of my time. No. But yeah, like we can't, we don't know the metric because you can't know the future. But what we do know is if we live in a world where there's going to be a 
a free market of the government, you know, pressing its pedals on it, then stop. They need to quit pressing the pedals on the, they literally need to quit pressing the gas pedal. Like just (laughs) if we're going to waste our, like, like our time, like just tell them to go fend for themselves. Like if we can make cheaper, like electricity, I think, you know, as a point, you know, I think I was in Austin and I earlier in this pot, early in earlier episodes had a, had a little geek out moment where we talked about like why nuclear energy should be the preferable energy generation versus anything else moving into the future because it solves so many like of our current problems and we can just bury it somewhere up in some mountain and forget about it for a long time until like space travel is more efficient and then just chuck it at the sun. But like we have some of the current solutions and we're faced with leadership who is unwilling to provide us the solutions, but we are still forced with an irreconcilable fact that there is a still a significant por- portion of a current of the American political structure that denies the issue exists. And that is a pretty partisan one and getting action through the house, getting action through the Senate, getting Joe Manchin to vote on climate change, even though he has a whole bunch of fossil fuel donors coming into his pocketbooks, even though there's no fossil fuel jobs in there. And he didn't even get the provision for the coal companies that got removed, but he got fossil fuel donations. So he wasn't willing to go on the fossil fuel things, even though that doesn't have anything to do with West Virginia. There are zero billionaires in West Virginia. But what was Joe Manchin worried about? The billionaires, when not a single West Virginia is a billionaire. But I think it's 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 important to point out though that you know you you've mentioned things that are true and that are problematic if you can show that we can project that climate change is going to have these effects then you also have the metrics to show that when i give subsidies to this company and they produce x amount of cars then it does x amount of good but they don't show us the numbers on that because it's minuscule which means really what these senators are pushing for in a conglomerate bill is not climate change it's called that it's not reducing climate change. They say that, but they don't demonstrate that. In fact, the whole reason that Manchin is hitting the brakes on this is because he says you don't have metrics that show A, transparency on where this money is going to go, and B, it doesn't show that the places that you're probably going to send them to are going to actually have a tangible effect. So I, I agree with you and with what Marcelo had said earlier, that it's important for us to pump the brakes in some ways. It's important for us to be able to make changes. And ultimately, I'm not opposed to you know how we might be able to change this unless we're going the current route because they're not providing metrics that show that we have this uh, this amount. Instead, they grandstand, they make promises, and they don't do anything. In fact, they're doing something is if you want to change our trajectory, you have to pass our $4 trillion bill, which at that point means that you're, you're politically driven. You're not demonstrating that your bill changes anything. I, for one, I'm very excited. Looking forward to the Republican Green New Deal in 2026. There's actually a good segment of like, especially young conservatives who really do care about climate. Just look to the American Conservation Coalition. These guys are doing fantastic work of talking about just like, what are things that can that can be done without growing the bureaucracy, without putting a greater burden on the average individual? Like one of the big things that they've been talking about was like things like climate-free trade zones, where they drop all tariffs on the trade of green energy resources, where they've t- spoken about an all of the above energy strategy, where funny enough to, I, to all of your credits, just drop tariffs on everything, letting the, the market decide at that point, if it winds up crushing uh, crushing an industry, if it winds up crushing coal, if it winds up crushing gas, in their view, so be it. I, I mean, there is a rising up like bipartisan consensus on it. You have a uh, South Carolina Congresswoman Nancy Mace, which funny enough is a big oil area where she's been focusing on environmentalism as well. 
have more criticisms about her other things, but I mean, just in general, like they, they're, they're not ignoring that anymore. Like they're like just looking at ACC's platform right now, like 21st century infrastructure, natural, uh, just natural solutions, global engagement through free trade, things along those lines have been issues that they've been doing a remarkably good job at like i wouldn't write the conservative movement out of this issue because frankly i think that's part of the reason why nothing gets done where we become so divided that we cannot come together on common sense solutions like what acc is talking about here where we where we can come together on some solutions that ultimately allow us to take that all over the above approach so we're coming up on hot takes i will kick it to josh and marcelo for final thoughts i really don't want to cut you guys off but um running up on the last bit of our time marcelo anything cut cut me off let's go to topics (laughs) all right then we will be right back with our hot takes all right and we're back so i'll go first my first hot take is going to be that I think that the current trajectory does minimal good. And this is not to say that we don't do anything, but we don't go down the current trajectory of the proposals of how to fix climate change that are on the table. You don't even really significantly mitigate the damage that is being done, that has been done, or that will be done through the ways that the world leaders who met this past week and a half, two weeks, are proposing. Largely, you have the hypocrisy of the specials and the billionaires and these people who have uh, at least a lot of money and a lot of political influence, which is why they're there, telling us that the biggest way that we can wind up improving our trajectory is by taking it out on what happens to be the middle and lower classes. And I, I've mentioned this in some of our previous episodes, and I'll get into it more when we get into the Build Back Better uh, debate again. But really what they're doing is they are proposing things that will require taxes across the board, and they are um implementing things that on a day-to-day basis most significantly harm the middle and lower classes. Specifically when uh, Jen Psaki, as the White House press secretary says, it's a good thing that gas prices go up because it will drive people toward electric vehicles, shows just how out of touch a lot of these legislators are because they're assuming that people have the money, the $30,000 or more, to just drop on a lifestyle change when on a day-to-day basis they're concerned with the inflation that's affecting the prices they pay on food, the inflation on their gas, the inflation for uh, what it costs to get to work, uh, the jobs when they are scarce, or the low wages that they give them. These are the issues that they care about, not pledges to lower their carbon footprint. Because for the average American, if it takes me having my carbon footprint as an average American to not suffer inordinate amounts of drop in the quality of life, then that's what they're going to be most concerned with. So I don't see the economic damage that's being done as justifiable. I also am really tired of the grandstanding that takes place on an international level now. I don't think a lot of good was actually done. And I also find it very politically driven to say, guess what? The cure for this is the agenda that has been wildly unpopular and we have to put it through. In fact, if we don't put it through, you're anti science because we have some subsidies for electric vehicles. Like it's it's a political shell game that disadvantages the middle Americans. So that's that's my hot take. Um, my energy hot take is always that the government should be more heavily investing in nuclear uh, technology, especially as we get closer and closer to the idea of a thorium reactor. I think that will not only be productive and like space exploration is going to the future, but also provide us like when there is a very terrible hurricane or a very terrible tornado that comes and destroys a town infrastructure, we can pick up basically a portable reactor, go dump it in the town and maybe power that town for weeks, sometimes even months 
of electricity um, just off that little portable reactor that we'll be able to make. And hopefully we'll see reactors like that in our lifetime too. And that also has a lot of optimism for bringing electricity and services out to communities that, you know, wires have never traditionally been able to give as we have like smaller and smaller and more workable like reactors. The second point that I always make about climate is like, it never feels real and humans are bad at abstraction. And this is in general of like our philosophy to how we work. We have to realize that we are like these biological machines who grew up in a prey predator environment and we're used to dealing with our immediate surroundings and immediate problems. And that's, you know, what we would call procrastination as an issue sometimes because it's not an immediate thing, that it's not an immediate issue because we don't see it right there in front of us because we're animals who are used to working in the immediate now. And now we're having to think on the idea of centuries and even thousands of years and considerations of nuclear technology. And that's something no humans have ever had to do before. That's our responsibility. That's our burden. We're the first ones to kind of face this really, really long-term thinking about societal planning. And I think that also then brings us to have to reconcile the considerations of like what we're doing. Um, as I said before, about 33 million people are going to die for every year that goes by from climate-related incidences. And that's just that's just like dead. That's going to be from like predicted wars that break out from like starvation, from plague, from famine, from drought that is going to be going on. And I, I can't stress of like every bit of that we can mitigate is going to be very, very important. I'll make uh, the point I made before is like we saw the Syrian refugee. Not very many people like needed a place to go. Europe lost its mind and America decided to join in for no apparent reason, even though it wasn't happening in there. And then everyone was so concerned about the Syrian refugee crisis because we're also afraid of this racist others. The nationalism wants us to ramp up every time we hear the idea of refugees, but we'll be talking refugees in the terms of tens of hundreds of millions. And it will be very important at that time then to make sure like those tendencies don't happen like again and to reduce the number of people that end up in that first place because it's going to be really awful some of the decisions countries are going to make about their borders and how they use their borders with guns here in the next 50 years. And every ounce of that we can prevent on top of every ounce of the storm. Um, storms and other environmental impacts is going to be worthwhile because even if our quality of life suffers a little bit, how much of our quality of life is worth another human being's entire life? My hot takes are, first and foremost, if the United States was actually serious about its climate carbon footprint, it would end the wars, it would bring the troops home, and it would internalize its defense mechanisms. The United States military is the largest polluter on the planet, period, in terms of the impact that it makes. And the simple act of bringing the troops home and focusing on its own borders rather than going out and seeking out monsters to hunt, as John Quincy Adams once said, would not only just have other residual effects here, but would also help with the climate issue. Uh, my second hot take is that we need to take an all of the above approach. We need nuclear. We need biomass. We need geothermal. We need. Uh, we ultimately need energy choice to ensure that there is as great of a chance of having a clean 
clean energy regime as humanly possible. And all of this can be done without growing the bureaucracy, without growing the government. My final hot take is, as I was saying before, do not count the conservatives out. There are free market solutions that have been going back to the early 2000s, talking about what free market environmental solutions there are. There's entire young conservative groups entirely focused on having a greater sense of, of environmental responsibility among our own personal decisions, advocating for free trade for the advance uh, for the advancing of, of green energy. Things along those lines are all things that we can do to ensure that we have a better world. These are things that I think that anyone from any side of the political spectrum can come together on. My first hot take will be just to agree with the military industrial complex. It should be destroyed. So yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, of course, that would be a great step to take. Probably the best one. My, my second one is that I don't, you know, you can call me a liberal or whatever, I don't care. But we have to pick a side, you know, and like like Josh said, at least in Congress and Senate, and, and the Senate, um, there's two sides, like always. And one of them is trying to pass policy that I believe will truly help the people that I care about in this country. Like the damages are not like, like you don't even have to look to another continent to, to see the damages that climate change is causing here. You can just look within. And the other party is trying to obstruct that. So I have to pick. I'm not going to abstain. I think I've done I've done that for too long. My third, I guess my third final point would be to, I'm very excited for what TJ said. You're giving me hope. You're like hoping really. It's like, it, it's, it's like if something, like, you know, if those policies come from the hands of Republicans, I hope, I'm not sure, but I hope the Democrats are on board with those two. Because the only way we're going to get out of this is if we have some consensus. And sadly, in the last two weeks of COP, I have not seen that well that. All right. Well, I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Go check out Andrew's music that will have dropped by the time this airs. And we will catch you back here next week. Mm-hmm.